Why is the cosmology that emerges out of psychedelics potentially threatening to science and whatnot? It's just that we're, and it, it isn't, it isn't an improvisational cosmology. It's a real cosmology, which can be cross-validated with enough seekers that enter into this condition, but it's a very, very deep look. You have to understand reincarnation. You have to understand that we're popping in and out uh, of time and space. You have to understand the, the structure of what we're going into when we die and that this is a deep, deep evolutionary process. And then once you have that, and once you understand that the veins in our body were basically being worked out in trees long before human beings got to it. And that, so that way in which we are a crescendo of an evolutionary current, which will continue for billions and billions and billions of years yet. But to me, I didn't sort of, I didn't like you, I didn't figure any of this out. I just had things given to me. Things were dumped into my mind over and over again. So this, well, one of the things that was dumped into my mind is human beings are coming to a tipping point. Human beings are coming to a crescendo. And oh, by the way, the whole theory of reincarnation that you've internalized from all your study of Eastern religions, it's wrong. Or it's actually only half wrong. It's half right, half wrong. They got reincarnation right, they got karma right, but they didn't see where it was going. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. We explore the fields of neuroscience, integrative medicine, anthropology, optimal psychology, systems thinking, and existential risk. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the next edition of Homegrown Humans, where we uh, speak with some of the thought leaders and pioneers of our time about the very basic questions of, of where have we come from, uh, what's going on, and what do we do now? And it's my great pleasure to welcome Chris Bache, the author of LSD in the Mind of the Universe, and, and my preferred subtitle, Diamonds from Heaven, um, and get to riff on what is one of the more sort of courageous and outrageous uh, thought experiments and lived experiments of, of recent history and everything that Chris has brought back from a sustained uh, multi-decade inquiry into the Misto and, and what it might uh, share or hint with us for the future ahead. So, so Chris, uh, thank you for joining us and welcome to Homegrown Humans. Uh, thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Absolutely. Now, now I, I, I've noticed that you've been kind of out and about on the podcast and talking circuit since your book came out. And, and interestingly, a number of mutual friends and colleagues had been recommending that I read it for the last sort of 18 plus months. And I was, I was obviously busy and heads down getting out uh, Recapture the Rapture. And I was also actually a little, just a little bit leery of one more trip report yeah you know i was just like oh come on you know have, have seen those kind yeah. of dug, dug deep into that world uh yeah. back in my earlier years and then i think it was roger walsh actually um that yeah. had most recently recommended it. and that was just kind of the puzzle piece you know i, I just yeah. deeply respect roger and and his yeah. his discernment and i was like all right i'm in Let, let's let's do this and in reading it i i sort of found myself teleported back to my sort of college and grad school years mm. of 
reading John Lilly's accounts, reading Philip K. Mm -hmm. Dick, reading Kesey, reading, you know, and, you know, Crowley, reading anybody really who had gone deep into the non-ordinary realms and sort of, and come out with some form of a map. Um, And just very much uh, appreciated, you know, both what you did and also how you did it. Um, so, so before we jump in, and I don't want this to be just one more retread of your normal <laughs> storytelling. So if, yeah. if it's okay, I want to paraphrase what you got up to, and then let's jump into kind of the implications. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but for listeners who have not come across your book yet, or, or have heard of your experiment, this was fundamentally a 20 plus year, quite methodical inquiry into high dose therapeutic, um, explorations of the LSD realms and whatever they were disclosing to you, and then documented, logged and unpacked with kind of, you know, not, not, not the, not the typical kind, but an intersectional or interdisciplinary um, set of frameworks ranging from comparative religion to transpersonal psychology to your own lived experience of what were the types and classifications and categories of experiences you had? How did they show up and when in the sequence of, of your multi-decadal journey? And then what are perhaps some of the implications of all of that, that high bandwidth information? That is a great summary, Jamie. I have to remember that. That's a good summary. (laughs) And by the way, also my preferred title for the book and the title that I always had while I was writing it was Diamonds from Heaven. LSD in the Mind of the Universe is an honest title, but it's a publisher's title. Yes. Well, and, and interestingly, for Stealing Fire, my subtitle was going to be The Secret Revolution in Altered States, not How Navy Seals, Silicon Valley, and Matrix Scientist. <laughs> that, that was pure publisher bullshit. And, and I was yeah. like, oh, come on, that, that, that's, yeah. that's painful. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that. And I, funnily enough, I couldn't even remember your main title, Diamonds yeah. from Heaven, is yeah. what lodged in my mind as well because diamonds from heaven basically is is what was given me in a non-ordinary state basically and and the idea was don't try to take them in layer by layer from the beginning give them a sense of where you're going to go at the end because there's too many layers there's too much depth it's too hard to navigate all those resistances give them at least a, a signal of where the journey ends and for me the journey ends up in the diamond luminosity territory diamonds from heaven. So what I did, I, just as you say, I took Stan Groff's um, protocols for working with high doses of LSD. And in the early years, those protocols were restricted to three sessions. They were for terminal cancer patients uh, to give them a taste of where you were going when you die. And I took that protocol and I just pushed it to its limit uh, for 73 sessions stretched out over 20 years in my kind of methodical way. And I was trained as a philosopher of religion. So I wasn't primarily interested in the healing potential. I was interested in the philosophical or cosmological potential to explore uh, the deeper dimensions of reality. So that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, and first let me, let me just offer um, thoughts and reflections and then we can kind of get deeper and okay. deeper into the, the, the juju. Um, yeah. But the, the first thing, and I, and I share this, and, I, and I've recommended your book to a number of friends, because I'm like, hey, this is, um, it, at least in my experience, a, a contemporary update on the kind of quote-unquote psychonaut trip report. And, it, and mm-hmm. to me, it differed meaningfully, although there were some fascinating similarities with yeah. Lily and with Philip K. Dix, right? Because mm-hmm. those guys were um, 
on the one hand, bold psychonauts plumbing the depths of the misto. And on the other hand, they were sort of slightly addled by that 70s era, you know, and slightly prone to either mythopoetic or romantic or even sort of, you just never could quite tell if they were shooting straight. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and, and so you had to sort of unwind um, some of their claims and, and the same with Leary and Das, the same with any of the folks from that era. And and even um, even stands, you know, transpersonal models of perinatal matrices and, you know, and, and past life regressions there would because we're doing a we're doing a project to Johns Hopkins using mm -hmm. Stan's work. He's an emeritus advisor to the project. Mm -hmm. And we actually kind of ran into this. Um, as we were trying to do the IRB protocols, which was, hey, wait, if you're going to provide any NOSC, any, any state induction technique, and in this case, just holotropic breathwork, and yeah. people start having unusual phenomenological experience, yeah. is it okay to kind of stamp it or collapse it into you're having a past life experience or yeah. you're having a prenatal birth, rebirth experience? Um, if you're going to be putting this into the Veterans Administration, if you're going to be putting this cross-culturally into yeah. India or Africa or, or Catholic South America, like, will yeah. that not potentially create blowback? So effectively, yeah. the teleological certainty of some of, these, some of these prior conversations is something that I felt was refreshingly lacking in yours. You were sort of agnostic and very yeah. provisional in how you held these lightning bolt insights. So, yeah. so, so talk to me about that for starters, right? How did you yeah. balance the overwhelming um, sort of almost Gnostic certainty, right, of yeah. having these epiphanies? And yeah. on the other hand, the kind of agnostic um, looseness or humility with which you held it? Well, several components of that. Um, the technique that I use turned out to be so powerful, it kept expanding the territory of the experiences beyond known territory, beyond previous territories. And once I began to realize that this was happening, and it wasn't, it didn't just happen once over a three, four year period, but it happened several times subsequently, then I, I, I was entering territory that was genuinely new, and I knew it was going to take me a long time to digest it. General rule of thumb is I never talk about any experience, ideally, until I've had 10 years to digest it, or at least five years. And that's one of the things I think that happens. If you look at many of the people's books, they write about psychedelics after a half dozen experiences and very close in time to the experiences. Or, or, or on Instagram TV. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. hey, I'm just out of the I'm just out of the jungle hut. Guess what? Yeah. 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 And I understand there's a tremendous wave that passes through you. But I would prefer to let that wave pass, capture as much as possible. And it, it really it took me years. I mean, I understood my experiences. As I was having them, I plotted them, I maintained the dialogue. Even where I didn't understood that, understand them, I knew I would understand them with repetition, more experience. But I didn't understand some of the subtlety of the interconnectivity of the, the sessions until I was actually writing the book. And that the writing of the book came 15 years after I stopped. And it took me five years to write the book. I had to overcome tremendous resistance. I didn't want to share this story. You know, on just the opposite, people are eager to get it out. 
I really seriously considered publishing this posthumously. Mm. And it's not just because it's so radical, but because it's so intimate. I mean, you're, you're dealing with your experience of the divine or your experience of the deepest realities that human beings discuss. And I wasn't sure I was ready to let people into that deeply into my life, our life. But in the end, my commitment as an educator, as a philosopher, because I knew that there was nothing personal about what I was sharing. I was sharing something that's, you know, not universal, but tending in that direction. It's something that underlies all of us. And therefore, and the universe was quite clear uh, towards the end as I was wrestling with this, whether to share, whether not to share. It said very clearly, you didn't give yourself these experiences. We gave you those experiences. They were never just for you. They were never intended just for you. You don't have the right to hold on to them. Now, I know that sounds in ego inflation, but it, it, it's not. It's just the, the simple awareness that in deep work, you enter into collective territory, you enter into cosmic territory, and no one enters there without having the shit kicked out of their ego and for taking responsibility that you were going as a member of a family and you were mm. representing, you're a representative of, of your family. And in the end, um, it's your family that deserves the witness that was given you. Mm. Yeah. Beautifully said. So, so that actually, that has an, an echo of John Lilly's Earth Coincidence Control Office, mm -hmm. right? Where he has those kind of eight or nine principles as to what is that higher order intelligence that he would go and, you know, reflect on, on LSD and float tanks and then subsequently ketamine and float tanks. And yeah. he started, you know, being a cartographer of that domain. And one of the things he said was that the Earth Coincidence Control Office had basically told him, hey, look, here's the deal. We're putting you through the ringer. Never forget you're in a life, a school, you know, a, a school of life, you know, training academy. We yeah. control all the big coincidences. You get to control the little, little coincidences. And no matter how shitty or weird or wild this gets, know it's on purpose. Yeah. So how does that, you know, how does that both sort of echo your experience of, of, you know, commitment, obligation, initiation, and, and are there any differences or nuances that you experienced in your own path? It echoes it. I, I would verbalize it maybe a little differently, but maybe that's inconsequential. The, the, the basic insight is the same. To me, uh, it was Stan Groff's work that gave me the confidence and the deep understanding and the willingness to trust wherever it takes you, wherever it takes you, if you submit to it completely, even how, no matter how inscrutable or how horrendous it is, you'll understand it later down the road. And it, it will take care of you even while it's punishing you and crushing you. When you come through that, it'll catch you on the other end and it'll take you into a world beyond anything you've ever imagined. And that this cycle of death and rebirth will repeat itself so just trust the process and go. And I think that, you know, over time, I discovered that um, I was always met by a consciousness and the, the, the nature of this consciousness and the scale of this consciousness was kept on escalating and expanding. So it's, I could never associate it with a being. Speaking in the plural is a good way to approximate, you know, that unknown quality. 
But I found myself always being engaged by an intelligence that was orchestrating my experience. And it was a classroom. It was really like I would be taken into class and I would brought back again and again and again till I had mastered a certain territory. And of course, in this territory, you always learn by becoming what it is you're learning. So you become this dimension of reality, this strata, you, you dissolve into its bandwidth. And then when that's done, something, this intelligence guided me into another death and rebirth surrender. And then a gradual over years acclimation to another level of reality with different rules, different patterns. And then the process would repeat itself. And eventually, I mean, eventually I learned that uh, I always thought in the beginning, first I thought this was for my benefit and I learned that that's not true. Hmm. And then later I had thought there is an end point to this journey. You come to a goal, the point is to get home or something like this. And what I learned along the way is no, it's an infinite journey. Don't think that you're that because I had many homecomings and many endpoints, but they keep kept on being transcended. So I learned eventually with one powerful experience, it's an infinite progression. You're going into the infinite. So you have to, it changes your strategy, which is one of the reasons I would be gentler on myself if I were doing. And I, I really honestly, sincerely do not recommend that people do what I did uh, because in ways that, I only partially describe in the book, um, it, it takes a toll and it takes a toll in subtle ways, but it becomes your life and you can't do it on the edge of your life. And when you go this deep, this intensely, uh, so much of your life is about understanding it, navigating it, integrating it and dealing with the social fallout as I found with my students. So I, I really recommend for all these reasons, the open-endedness of it, uh, a gentler approach, uh, mm. smaller steps, letting in as much as possible, taking it in, digest it. I'm more patient now with the slow growth of, growth of pace of human evolution. <laughs> At the same time that you're more aware of the actually absolutely mortal stakes. Yeah, well, you know, nature is stepping up is turning up the heat underneath us now. Uh, history is turning up the heat. We are at a make or break moment. I think this is probably something that other species and other systems probably face, but basically I think we are at a make or break moment in human evolution. Yeah. Well, you, you just present something that, that I think is fascinating and that there's a, there's a bookend to it um, as, as to the, the future human and the potential kind of the, the the end of history as you, as you've glimpsed it. But for now, you were just talking about that sense of, Hey, um, no matter how wild and woolly, this is all taking place according to plan. Yeah. I have some connection, however, tenuous or deliberately enacted to higher intelligences. My life has a purpose that is beyond my necessarily immediate and rational knowing, but it all, it's all going to work out. Right. And, and this, yeah. this is, this is, you know, on the surface, very similar to kind of new thought, new age, hashtag universe, right? Everything happens for a reason. And a lot of the absolutely um, superficial glosses 
Yeah. Right. Of basically kind of neoliberal, hyper individualistic, consumptive spiritual Gnosticism. Yeah. I'm afraid so. so. Yeah. Right. So, so, so how do we tease those apart? Because, and again, Lily had that similar idea of like, Hey, my life's on rails. I'm being reeled in by a golden thread. And no matter what happens, this is part of the plan. I don't know if you know, Kate Bowler's work. She's a, a theologian at Duke. Um, mm -hmm. But she studied evangelical movements. She wrote a book about it. And then she was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Mm -hmm. And she wrote an awesome book called Everything Happens for a Reason and yeah. Other Lies I've Loved. <laughs> and, and, and she just does this beautiful, really funny, yeah. poignant, like unpacking of like her lived experience. And then she's still in these communities of faith and practice. And everybody's telling her, oh, yeah. this is happening to you for a reason. She's like, fuck yeah. you. I've got a three-year-old. Yeah. You know, yeah. this sucks and it's random. So how, how did you reckon with and wrestle with both on the one hand that incredibly and profoundly reassuring sense of like, oh shit, my life isn't random. This isn't just heat death of a distant star and chaotic, <laughs> chaotic yeah. nature of, of, of red and tooth and claw unfoldings yeah. of nihilism. And on the other hand, that sense that um, even if your life was affording, you know, unfolding according to some cosmic or divine plan it didn't no. save you from getting your ass roundly handed to you on a routine basis down here in 3d how yeah. did you how did you balance those yeah good good questions uh this is a good question um partly i think it's primarily by learning uh by being initiated or being taken into deeper complexity that lies behind what we experience as the manifest existence by taking being shown enough of it and sh that you begin, begin to respect how incomplete our understanding of it is and uh, that so many of our philosophies and religions and and new age formulas are very superficial they catch elements of a truth, but it's much more complicated than that. Our individual evolution is much more embedded in our collective evolution. The, the structures of our collective maturity influence the structures of our individual maturity uh, in complex ways. So I, on the, in, I basically, well, let me back up a little bit. I'm, gonna, I'm still thinking about your first question about the surety of the cosmology that comes with these experiences and why we have to be careful when we introduce that cosmology. And this ties in here. Um, I spent a lot of time unpacking the cosmological implications of my experiences. I really wasn't interested in, and I didn't present to the world in, in Diamonds from Heaven, many of my personal experiences, personal illuminations, personal healings, because that's, that's not very philosophically significant except that it happens. What was more important were the insights that came when I was in the peak series of experience, the peak hours and the experience, I won't say visions, but the experience of reality that was given me during those hours. And so there was a definite unfolding and even when I was begging for it to give me more of something or the other that I wanted to, I learned that it wasn't. It, I, these experiences were being titrated to me because it didn't want to destroy the organ, the consciousness that was 
integrating and organizing these experiences inside time and space. Mm-hmm. Too much ecstasy is very disorienting for you know living well on Earth. Uh, that, 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 that could be a bumper sticker. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, quite different than some of the past experiences, huh? You know, just when you begin to get taken into the vastness and and to experience, for example, the entire human species in a way which doesn't collapse any of our individual stories, but all of them are present as strands within this single organism, the human species, and to experience it from a trans-temporal perspective incarnating generation by generation and growing itself through all of our individual struggles being an expression of and and developing its larger evolutionary development. All these truths then about, well, you control your reality, you make your reality, you can think your way into a better reality. All those are like small sub-truths within much, much bigger tapestry of truths. And so I, I began to realize I just had to keep my mouth shut for a long time and do my best to understand, digest what was given to me. And uh, yeah, that's why I waited so long to write uh, Diamonds from Heaven. I basically didn't publish it for 20 years after I stopped this journey. And I, I did psychedelic sessions in gentler substances and different substances after I stopped in 1999, but the core work was the industrial strength uh, LSD work. And that I waited a long time because I, I, knew, I knew it wasn't going to fit in to many people's vision of reality, including religious, but also in the transpersonal movement to a degree, and even in the psychedelic movement to a degree, it was going to push an edge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and what edge did you, did you feel that you were closest to? Closest like where, where was to... the biggest gap between what you received and kind of the, the sort of the map or the gestalt of what you were experiencing? And then, and then sort of, you know, the, the various bridges to the other mm-hmm. communities of practice that you felt nearest to? Where, where, where was the kind of most either challenging or controversial or unique or just hard to wrap one's head around (laughs) information as you experienced it. Well, the first was letting go of a personal transformational model. And that I wrote Dark Naturally Dawn, which was published in 2000, to answer the question, how did so many people get involved in my therapy? Why did my death rebirth process get expanded to include hundreds of thousands of human beings and thousands of years of human history? how is this in any way serving my healing? And the answer was, well, it's not dummy. Uh, That's not what's happened. You did your personal, you know, digesting of any pain and suffering that you little bitty life had gotten. This is different. This concerns your human family. This concerns all the pain and suffering that's lodged in the collective psyche that still lives and pulses there. And it can be described in different ways in terms of souls in the bardo. It it can be described in terms of the the collective psyche of this unified organism that human beings are. Uh, But it's there. And the work 
becomes collective. Uh, that was the first differentiation. Once I made that jump with the help of Rupert Sheldrake's work, and, let and specifically open. the morphogenetic fields, some sense of noosphere-like yeah. non-material carrier wave consciousness that we and share. And the feedback between the individual and the collective. Not that the collective is the ultimate, but it is a significant next step, uh, that feedback system. Um, Which, by the way, just, just to put a pin in the map here, is fundamentally yeah. different than the medical therapeutic model that MAPS and that others are now advocating, right? Which is almost yeah. neurochemical, psychosocial, therapeutic, but still hyper-individualistic in its focus as to what happens inside you under the influence of a given compound with talk therapy or any other adjunct yeah. modality, right? And, you know, I, I, I'm... I'm so happy for the renaissance that's taking place. I'm so happy for the researchers who's being done in so many fine institutions, and, and I love what they're doing. But from my perspective, this is just the beginning of the story. They're just getting story. And there's, there is so much stuck in the physiology of this phenomenon, how the brain is behaving and models of what that means for human behavior. But they're still working within a pretty tightly held cosmology. It's close to materialist cosmology, mm -hmm. and it is close to an individual therapeutic modality. But my confidence is uh, the medicine will take them into the deeper waters, and they will get there. We've already been there, and um, they will get there. Because once you peel off those outer layers, then you begin to sink into the deeper waters naturally. Now the question is, does psilocybin have the power to take people that deep? And my sense is every psychedelic has a range, uh, kind of a capacity, a strength. And I, I think psilocybin doesn't have that, that much of a range, not as much of a range as LSD. Hmm. I tend to think of it as psilocybin, ayahuasca, LSD. Uh, and LSD has its own distinctive properties. It tends to be in my experience, uh, a high ceiling psychedelic, whereas psilocybin is really close to your body and your emotions and, and your you know physical system. Uh, ayahuasca is kind of integrating both. But LSD, at least at my, the dose levels I was working with, which is at the body saturation point of 500 micrograms. So I was working 500 to 600. That's um, that, that's a full send, folks, for you for you, for you folks listening. <laughs> listening it yeah. I, you know, yeah, it's it, it's a strange art form. Mm -hmm. Now, now I understand what I was doing better than I understood it when I was doing it, mm. and now I would describe it a little differently. And it's because of that that I really don't recommend it. You just have to really gird your loins tight and. If you're going to do this, you have to be really willing to lay your life on the line. Yeah. Screw your courage to the sticking point. Set the controls for the heart of the sun. Yeah. And basically, yeah. And stick stick yeah. the fucking landing. Because <laughs> well, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it you know, and I found that there's a balance to it, a balancing act. It's it there is the short-term courage. And it does take the way any kind of anybody who does um, any mar any adventurous sport to an edge it takes that kind of courage. But then there's a long term wisdom, which has to do with balance. And I, I'm not sure that I got that right. I mean, mm. what I went through after I stopped 
and tells me that I didn't get it right. You know, that I, the, and- uh, well, or, or that it's damn near impossible to walk the path of the mage or the shaman while also holding, holding a house, right? Relationships and career and, and socially constructed identities where in the past, you know, the magician lived in a hut at the edge of the forest and did not explicitly deal with the fuckwits back in the town. You know, they came <laughs> to visit true. them. You know, it really is. There are some advantages to doing it on the mountain and yeah. being in relative isolation. I think it's that is really true part of it. And I yeah. think another part of it is the sheer power of the medicines that we have access to today. So LSD is the most concentrated psychedelic in the history. I think maybe before 5-MeO-DMT, mm-hmm. super concentrated, super powerful. But now we have the, the augmenting technology of sound and access to the world's music. Mm-hmm. So we're not sitting around the fire beating a drum as, as good as that is, but we're putting on headphones and using a very carefully calibrated playlist to really amplify the experience and drive you to, you know, to new limits. Yeah, which, which brings to mind the, the Grateful Dead's wall of sound in 1974, right? They put all their money, right, yeah. into one of the highest fidelity, Im, you know, spatially imaging sound systems, yeah. specifically for people going to the, you know, the Dionysian, as Campbell said, the Dionysian ritual yeah. of a dead show on lysergic acid. Like, yeah. the, that, would, that was arguably some of the, you know, the most innovative um yeah. tech supportive tech yeah on that. and then, personally then, i can't imagine taking my consciousness into that environment given my story my journey was just so different uh-huh. i can't imagine placing myself in that complex of a social situation and opening my consciousness up into some of the territory i went into yeah so well, and, and, and the way they did it, right? And the reason that there's such a fetish for specific Grateful Dead tunes, yeah. it's not that they love to sing along to them on the radio. It's that they were these 15 to 20 minute journeys. They were sonic soundscapes that everyone could just offload working consciousness to. Yeah. They could dance and move in their body. And then they would go on these lyric sonic journeys and yeah. they would always bibbity bobbity boo, take yeah. you back to the beginning. Yeah, and and so there became this shared cultural meanscape of like, oh, this is a terrapin station. Like, this is a yeah. song about redemption. This is a song about fucking heaven, and I know we'll yeah. get there soon. Or this yeah. is a song about the dark star, like transitive nightfall of diamonds. Shall we go, you and I? Right. And so yeah. these these yeah. lyrics took on an epiphanic scriptural uh, capacity at yeah. the same time that the kinesthetic, you know, and, and polyrhythmic elements offloaded default mode network working consciousness, right? Yeah. And they trusted the band to not take them any place excessively spooky or scary. Yeah. Right. So it yeah. became this beautiful, you know, beautiful kinesthetic, um, acoustic moving yeah. meditation. And you're like, oh, they cracked it. You know, like, yeah. like that was a yeah. very innovative thing to come out of the Redwoods, really? uh, La Honda, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and, really. and Northern and, California. In some ways, my work is, it's similar in the sense that there's music, it's carefully chosen music, it's calibrated mm-hmm. a little differently. It's mm-hmm. handled by a, someone who's monitoring me and taking feedback from where I'm going and what I need to make a transition. And in the end, uh, five, six hours later, it brings me back in with carefully selected music. So there's a going out, a peaking mm. and running, and then a coming back. So it is it is a mm. long, carefully calibrated day. Mm-hmm. Little different in the sense that 
never any words in English, mm. never any words that I can understand, no thematic content. And uh, I found that for myself very quickly, uh, Johns Hopkins uses a lot of classical music in their sessions and whatnot. I've seen their playlist. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd let go of Western music, of West, in especially classical music. And I found I used only indigenous music from different cultures mm. for the power parts, for the, you know, the real power part. And then, mm -hmm. you know, kind of yoga music coming back into the gentle face. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's, that's very okay, Boomer. You know, like, I mean, I think lately, like between Burning Man and various EDM, like there's way, there's way more intergalactic and otherworldly sounds yeah. with some incredible carrier wave bass, especially in high fidelity, both either like yeah. sound stack systems like Function Ones yeah. or, you know, Bose headphones or whatever. But I think that the yeah. fact that music is the wallpaper of our minds and especially yeah. so uh, in these susceptible states is, is yeah. no doubt about it. Now, a quick yeah. question, just, just on the, the, the different qualities of the molecules, I'm also sure. wondering, um, I mean, my sense is, is that, it, you know, that the, the LSD mushroom ayahuasca, um, you know, stacking that you were just describing as far as the kind of the hierarchy of access to information, my sense is that's also massively dose dependent, right? Because, you know, yeah. lower dose mushrooms tend to be somatic and tend to be, yeah. you know, very earth-based, like, ooh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm decomposing into this pile of leaves or I'm feeling one yeah. with the tree that, that yeah. I'm leaning against. But on higher doses, they get whack, wackily galactic. Yeah. Uh, and, and, this, and, you know, and arguably true for I as well. So yeah. I'm wondering, let, let me run this past you. For me, um, LSD feels like interstellar mind lattice. It's very, mm. very clean, and it's and it's literally almost like the intersection intersectional coordinates of of a of a laser map. Yeah. And it's very low friction, and you can travel literally at the speed of photons. Yeah. Um, and it's clean. There's no body loading. There's no none of that. Right. It's it's, it's yeah. absolutely precise. And that yeah. mushrooms are predominantly they feel very not surprisingly mycelial in their networking. So mm -hmm. rather than clean grid coordinates, it's almost dendritic. Right. Yeah. And that Aya is potentially, you know, again, not surprisingly, sort yeah. of more like multi-layered jungle um, yeah. humus. You know, yeah. it's kind of like it's yeah. all the things in all the directions. So does yeah. that track for you or, 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 you know, and again, I don't know what your experience has been with um, the Sonoran toad or anything like that, but like mm -hmm. comparing and obviously, mm -hmm. you know, what, what is your sense, let's say, of 5-MeO to LSD and or... Yeah. Your, your perception of the information, the access to the information layers and yeah. how do they represent based on which compound yeah. you're, you're, you're jacking into your synapses? Yeah, I'm, all, I'm still working out my understanding of the relationship between 5-MeO, DMT and LSD. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I'll, I'll reserve that one. I mean, I have a, a tremendous respect for 5-MeO, DMT. Uh, but one of the things we'll talk about later is uh, the significance of the length of exposure, the, the, the time window, because I mm -hmm. think that's a major uh, factor when you're talking about long-term, cognitively coherent immersion into the mind of the universe. How big that window is gives you time for interaction, time for that reality to purify this reality for you to stabilize and for the conversation to develop when it's so short it you can have multiple immersions but it's still so short it really contracts the ability to to do that um 
I think that's why Rick Strassman in his DMT research, he found that um, people were not, they had extraordinary experiences, but they were not very changed by those experiences. And I think it's primarily because they were short acting, not because of some defect in, in the, the state itself. Yeah. Uh, I, I think low dose, high dose has huge range and, and big influence. And I think you're right. Each of those substances has, has a different kind of level of consciousness or range of consciousness overlapping that it accesses. And like when I look at, I, I have some limited experience with ayahuasca, not as much as I would like, but some, and I learn a lot of it in addition to my own experience from the art. And in the art, I see this complex jungle interweaving of all life forms, it going up into the astral world of spirit and then going up into the celestial world of the gods and goddesses, and then UFOs popping along into the background because we're clearly in communication with these. And there's that. Uh, and I, the LSD experience has been different for me, just different. I participated in a conference a couple of years ago and it was on a DMT and entity encounters. Mm. And so I was talking with the guys who were there with about 20 of us presenting. And in my experience, in the, the way I, the doses that I used and the way I used it, I didn't have many entity encounters with LSD. Mm -hmm. And so I, I hypothesized that you have to be an ego to meet an ego. You have to be a self to meet a self. So there is a level of reality, which is granular. And there are spiritual beings in that level of reality with all the interconnectivity and permeability and stuff that we assume. But there, there is that level of reality, but that is held within larger levels of reality that just wipe out all that particularity and dissolves it into sinewy textures of a deeper connective tissue. And then there is another modality where it all lives and breathes as one, all the textures, all the bits and pieces, everything. It's just like, there's only one of us here. There has only ever been one of us here. Everything is folded into that one, you know, just a different reality. Now, LSD for me, at least the way I was met, and the, what I was put through, it just ground me up and just ground me and destroyed me and ground me and destroyed me again and again, and then plunged me into these bandwidths where I lived as some aspect of life for hours at a time. And then I would come back into crisp beige and digest that. But no, I never was able to concretize the the consciousness that I was engaged by as a being. Every time it, I tended to kind of hold it as a being, it dissolved us all into an even deeper strata of being. And then it would dissolve us. And so every, any attempt to kind of hold a, uh, a mirror image to an individual self and think of it as an individual, it just collapsed under the enormity of the scope. Now, it meaning including yourself as that individual that was trying to hold it? Yeah, well, it's interesting. What, what happened was I was, it started around like maybe I was 18, 19, 20 sessions in. And I asked, I was with this consciousness, was having this deep experience. And I turned and I asked, who am I with? Who are you? Mm -hmm. And 
I experienced a dying, a kind of a mini death, a loss of control, a collapse. And I woke up in a state of awareness in which I was with a deeper aspect of myself. What had been it and me at this level, at a deeper level, became myself. So I, and then the same thing happened. I asked it again, and this went on for hours. I kept dying and being born into a deeper aspect of my consciousness, but it wasn't my small M, it was my capital M. And so I was basically being taken until eventually all boundaries fall away. And we were in that condition where there is only one reality. Uh, It's a cosmic reality. It takes all physical existence is taking place within that reality. And this is the condition of being home in that sense. You're, it, there is no place to go beyond oneness, at least I thought at the time. You're in the home of oneness, that core, core truth. Mm-hmm. Well, well let, let, let's, let's, let's toggle this to the other bookend, right? Because on the one hand, you were describing, you know, in, in the beginning of this dialogue, that sense of like, oh, wow, my life is on rails. It has a purpose and it is being unfolded even beyond my ken. But that, and I get, but I get to glimpse it with that kind of deep knowing. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, there was, you know, and that was at the sort of nominally at the personal to transpersonal level. Like, what, yeah. what's it? I thought this was about my personal healing, but it's not. But on the other hand, you're here for a reason, buddy. This is for yeah. your, this is for your extended human family, right? Yeah. So you're kind of a proxy or a representative, yeah. getting this information. Yeah. And on the other hand, and this was actually where you kind of won me for the rest of your book, right? Which, because if it had just been, hey, unicorns and fluffy rainbows, friends and neighbors, oh, yeah. right? I would, have, I would have put it down. But yeah. you were like, fuck, man, I kept getting dragged into the collective suffering, yeah. into the war, the rape, the pillage, the famine, right? And, and this sea of seemingly perpetual grief of the human experience. Yeah. And rather than bypassing it or even being initiated into it and then transcending it, you kept getting dunked in that apple barrel um, repeatedly again yeah. and again and again. So, so two and years. Even, yeah. And, and so before we get to the other side of that, just just yeah. share what that experience was like and and what mm-hmm. insights you gained from that just seemingly overwhelming amount of suffering that is our lot it's not our lot permanently it's our lot temporarily it's our lot as part of an ev- a stage in the evolution of consciousness in the form of homo sapiens so it, it's it, it's a deeply endemic in the system but i think it's reflective of where we have been and where we are but it's not reflective of where we're going I truly think we are processing and offloading a lot of the karmic impact of this less less intelligent, less aware being that a human being was with only a few sparks coming through in Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad and great beings like that of what we are at a deeper level. But I think we're anyway, so I think we're uh, we're coming into a different era with a different kind of potential to write a different story. But what it was like to open up to it was, it was confusing. I didn't understand it. Uh, I trusted it because every time I went through it and I, I was brought out the other end, I was, this is when 
when I was entering deep time for the first time in my life. So I was given a series of a year of experiences where I experienced my entire life as a completed whole, start to finish, everything present, all my time moments in a now. That, that was like, what the hell is that all about? That's amazing. Uh, but then not to get to that, I'd have to go through this pain and suffering, which get, kept getting bigger. Then I stopped my work for six years. I started again six years later, and this pain and suffering, bam, right there. And it just get worse and deeper and deeper. But by then I was beginning to understand. I was beginning to pick up enough of the, the texture of the experience to realize that uh, this is in some way the human, the story which I'm engaging. Now, I don't try to describe beyond what I do in the book uh, often uh, what the ocean of suffering was like because uh, at one point I say in the book, it takes you years to learn how to sustain suffering of this magnitude and stay conscious. In the beginning, you go unconscious. And I don't, it's, it's not an ego aggrandizing thing. It's just a reporting. This is the phenomenology of the experience. To op you, you learn that your being somehow, it, it can open up into and, and to capture or catch or process or receive the hell realms. You're basically in the hell realms. But if, if you receive that experience completely, it doesn't just, it doesn't lodge in you. It moves through you. And it, there is a a greater health that comes out of the system. But it's, it's a profound mystery. To me, it became a mystery when I hit a culmination and we hit this culmination point. And then I was catapulted into my first contact with archetypal reality. Why does it stop? Why did the ocean of suffering stop after two years? And, and this is about four years into the journey. Uh, why does one, once you've merged and once you've learned to become a facilitator of this type of collective healing, why did the universe take me past that? There were still deaths. There were still, you know, terrible suffering, but it wasn't in the form of, the, of human history. It was in a different kind of pattern. And that's where I ended Dark Night Early Dawn with that question. Why does the suffering end? And I come back to it in Diamonds from Heaven. And the two answers I've come up with is I think some cosmic oversight says, okay, that's enough. It's too big for any one person to do. You've done a share. That's it. You're not allowed to do any more. But I think the deeper answer was uh, you're more useful to the system operating, infusing higher energies from above than drawing those lower energies out from beneath. You don't lose, you don't lose your commitment to the system. You just, um, you serve it in a different way. Mm -hmm. You serve it from a higher register. And so, well, I mean, there's so many questions here. One yeah. is, um, and this, this is, this is tactical, but for, for listeners, it might be helpful, which is, um, I think most people in their psychedelic journey would assume that a quote unquote bad trip, right. Was a sign of either impurities or imbalances or not worthinesses in me that's why i'm getting hammered 
And then yeah. I cleanse them and purify them. And then I get to the fluffy clouds and rainbows. Yeah. But if I keep having these fucking experiences, there's something yeah. defective or wrong with me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Same way people will be like, oh, I don't like weed, man. It makes me paranoid. Like, you sure about that? It might just be you. Right. Um, um, you know, but, but somehow you yeah. decoupled that egoic personal journey identification with getting dunked in the suffering. And yeah. you somehow, you, you either, there were breadcrumbs or stepping stones, I don't know which, that mm -hmm. led you to, oh, perhaps I am experiencing this impersonally to transpersonally. And the, and the two models that, that sort of show up as I was listening to you were, you know, either the, the Buddhist notion, the, the Tibetan Buddhist notion of Tonglen, right? Literally, yeah. I am metabolizing the suffering of the world and, and yeah. buffering, buffering it and transmuting it into love and compassion, yeah. or a kind of Christic initiatory yeah. experience, which I'm bearing witness to the deep now, and mm -hmm. the temporal realms, the temporal realms of, of, of Kronos, where it all where all the shit happened, the life's a bitch, yeah. and then we die versus the always and already. Yeah. And, and, you know, curious if if either of those was alive for you, or which one feels most most resonant for the experience of you bridging that monumental abyss. Well, there have been two. I've taught and studied world religions all my life, uh, but there have been two that have been the strongest shaper of my experience. And the first is Christianity, and I studied to be a priest starting when I was in high school. Left it after my first year of college. But it made a, a deep impression. And there, there is the suffering servant, the Christ on the cross, the idea of, of um, taking on the suffering of others is a theoretical possibility that's handled in an archetypal way, but it's there. And in Buddhism, you have the bodhisattva. So both of them are coherent with this idea that uh, a higher life is lived when you live your life for others. And I had internalized that, and, but I think, but I'm also a dad. And I think what I did is not special. It's not saintly. If, if you see suffering, if you see a child that's suffering and there's something you can do to help it, well, you naturally do it just because you're a mensch. You, know, you just you naturally do it. And so if you're given an opportunity to somehow help suffering, you just do it. It's, it's not because you just do it. And the first I did it because I thought this was part of an ego death, a deeper ego death. And I did it because when I went through it, I was given a great reward. I was given a, an unusual experience to transcend time was, and then to be taken into a cosmological journey that followed. I did it for the reward. Uh, and over time, I began to understand that what this was serving, but in the work at a deeper level, not just the collective suffering. In this work, I learned to overcome a lot of conditioning, the conditioning to pull your hand out of the fire when you're suffering. Gum jabbar. Yeah. <laughs> I learned that in this circumstance, the secret is to go deeper into the suffering because I learned that the deepest breakthroughs with the deepest, most glorious insights and experiences came after the deeper purifications. And so I learned that all death is purification, all this suffering, it's all purification. It's all it is, is purification. And, and once you've died and been reborn multiple times, you know, the concept of death 
loses its meaning. You learn that death is simply when purification reaches so deep, it is dissolving the structures that have held your awareness. Mm. Once those structures are going, you experience a collapse, a death, and then an awakening within a larger context. You befriend death. And so you actually, not only do you not misinterpret a bad experience over personally, but and you not only do you not um, be willing to handle it when it comes, you actually facilitate the immersion, the, the confrontation with death. You are always, death becomes your greatest ally because death is purification. And yeah. the deepest purification leads to the greatest, the greatest immersion. That there's that beautiful quote from Goethe, right? He who does not know the secret die and become shall mm -hmm. remain forever a stranger on this earth. Ah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. You hold a lot of gems in your mind. I love reading you. You really <laughs> hold a lot of them. Well, funnily enough, I mean, they literally are just the ones that have spoken to my soul. People ask, like, how do you remember that? Shit? I'm like, I don't remember anything. You know, mm -hmm. it's just we, we get to the, that location in the grid, and yeah. there they are just shining in neon. You're like, oh, that, that right yeah. now is this. Yeah. Um, so, so let's, let's keep going then, right? Because I think okay. we've deliberately slow rolled. Although interestingly, you said that the suffering was temporary, right? Yeah. But I wonder if it is temporality, right? Like, and, and of course, anything in Kronos time is by, by the big scheme of yeah. cosmic time temporary. But yeah. is it that the suffering is, is a byproduct or a substrate of life in Kronos, life in matter, life in, you know, birth and decay. And, and, and the thing that you, you lay out, not now you get to the grand, so what, right? You, you were in that collective suffering repeatedly. At first, you didn't know why it began to take shape and order. And then you were elevated to the higher realms um, on the other side of sort of enduring it without being broken by it. Yeah. And then you were given this kind of grander explanation of the in service of what, right? And, and to me, if, if I can paraphrase, let me see if I, if I tracked you right, which is that it was remarkably similar to some of those kind of ancient Hindu stories and origin stories of at, at one point in, in the timeless time, there was only the one, there was the all. Yeah. And then a little bit like Shiva and Shakti, there was that sense of, well, this is kind of fucking boring. So mm -hmm. let's split, right? Let's split into the imminent and the transcendent. And then yeah. we're going to play a grand old game of cosmic hide and seek. And yeah. oh, by the way, some at some point along the lines, monkeys with thumbs and prefrontal cortices got in on the game. And we were the stalking horse for self-referential consciousness. And, yeah. and by the way, it's going to hurt like a like a bitch for a really long time. And that's your world of suffering, suffering, yeah. despair, war, famine, rape, and, and, and hardship. Yeah. But that is to spin you up to a high enough frequency to become self-aware man-gods contemplating our own existence in the all. And if you can just hang on until then, friends and neighbors, it all works out swimmingly. That, well, you have a, a beautiful way of describing things. Yeah, you, <laughs> I think you've compressed it all. That you know, with reincarnation, you know, what you have to understand. Re, this is in terms of this. Go back to the cosm. Why is the cosmology that emerges out of psychedelics potentially threatening to science and whatnot? It's just that we're, and it it isn't it isn't an improvisational cosmology. It's a real cosmology which can be 
cross-validated with enough seekers that enter into this condition, but it's a very, very deep look. You have to understand reincarnation. You have to understand that we're popping in and out uh, of time and space. You have to understand the structure of what we're going into when we die and that this is a deep, deep evolutionary process. And then once you have that, and once you understand that the veins in our body were basically being worked out in trees, long before human beings got to it. And that so that way in which we are a crescendo of an evolutionary current, which will continue for billions and billions and billions of years yet. But to me, I didn't sort of, I didn't like you, I didn't figure any of this out. I just had things given to me. Things were dumped into my mind over and over again. So this, well, one of the things that was dumped into my mind is human beings are coming to a tipping point. Human beings are coming to a crescendo. And oh, by the way, the whole theory of reincarnation that you've internalized from all your study of Eastern religions, it's wrong. Or it's actually only half wrong. It's half right, half wrong. They got reincarnation right. They got karma right. But they didn't see where it was going. Hmm. Okay, well, we'll just, just, just slow that down and unpack that because I think that would be just okay. helpful for anybody listening. Well, my understanding, my take on it is that in the axial age, where there was this tremendous kind of deepening of our conscious experience, we began to have experiences of the metaverse, of the mother universe. And if you, and all the theologies that came out of those religions were basically theologies of escape. They were cosmologies of up and out, what I call an up and out cosmology. So you achieve salvation, you're saved of your sins, or you achieve realization, your enlightenment, and then you no longer have to be here because once you touch the mother universe, it's so blissful that you know that that's where you want to be. And you know that that's where you came from. So you develop a theology of the fall, uh, you know, and then you have to be saved or you have to work your way up. But even if you're a bodhisattva, you basically keep coming back in order to get everybody up. It's an up and out cosmology, yep. which leaves the fundamental meaning or the or the purpose of physical existence unexplained. Which so is this okay. is just a bus station for us to solve our Sudoku puzzle. Exactly. Then, yeah. But once you begin to understand the scale of the universe and and the complexity of the universe and the project that this thing is about then that just becomes unacceptable. And I think reincarnation is we're, we're now grabbing, just as we're grabbing a deeper understanding of nature and a deeper understanding of ourselves as part of nature and the continuities that are taking us on our own existential journey and, and the limitations of worldviews that reflect the stages of human evolution. I think now we're coming to see at least what happened in my sessions, what was shown me in my sessions, that there comes a point in evolution, in our reincarnating evolution, where the soul, which is the consciousness that holds all of our lives, all of our memories as an integrated singularity, that soul incarnates or wakes up inside a human being. That's not like simply being an enlightened human being. There is so much life experience there it's not only a new and improved human being, it's a quantum step into a different order of conscious being. Mm. But, but it's incarnate and on this earth, is it's that? It's incarnate and on this earth. And I call that the diamond soul. It, it, the diamond soul, because when this happened to me, when I was incarnating all my these lives at a particular session, when the synthesis hit and I was catapulted into this 
kind of gift of a of a of a pre-experience of my diamond soul. I experienced this diamond light just exploding from my trust. And just so I call it the diamond soul. That's where we're going. I think that's the transition. We'll come back to this, but that's the transition that we're trying to make right now into that caliber of existence. Mm. And and you posit that as the future human. Is that was that your phrase? Yeah, you, you gave you gave it a specific term for that. Yeah, I just call it the future human. I mean, every, I think many many people have this intuition that they touch it in meditation and in their various non ordinary states. That there's this the future is not going to look like the present. And I know this is an old recurring archetype and, you know, it's, it's a, it's a meme in our culture and it's a meme, which has mostly disappointed us, mm-hmm. but it comes up very strongly in indigenous cultures and in mystical cultures and in psychedelic cultures mm-hmm. that we are on the cusp. As, as does the fall, right? The, the, the fall is recurrent and through indigenous cultures. There was almost always a time when the nations of man and the nations of the beavers and the bison and the, you know, and, and the eagles could speak to each other. There's almost yeah. always a prehistorical time where all was in some form of union or communion. Yeah. And then the clock started and history turned and those yeah. moments, or, or we, we, we supped with the gods, whatever it was. Yeah. And then, and then we ended up the, in the now of words and language and matter and constraint. Um, so we, yeah. we, we, we just riffed on Lily, right. And, yeah. and his earth coincidence control office and that sense of everything happens for a reason Yeah. and, and it's analogs in your experience. And then what you're describing as far as the the rationale or justification for the suffering and that that bifurcation of the monad like the 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 shiva shakti two-step right to find ourselves to find each other in our divinity and recognize it again um plays really closely i don't know if you've ever come across uh philip k dicks um he has this there's a one or two pager and if anybody wants to google it just look up we are pluriforms of god and he describes it as the I Ching, he, he unpacks it. It's just this incredibly dense page. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was the closest thing I've ever seen. He basically said, hey, the, the great blasphemy, right, of, of the Western world is not, it is that the original sin is bullshit. We, we yeah. mistook the signal. Yeah. The great blasphemy is that the yin and the yang actually bifurcated and that the yin became imminent and forgot itself in matter and that yeah. the yang, right, what, what were these pluriforms of God? And then through their own volition, they choose to descend to earth. And in that immanentization of the eschaton, right, they forget themselves, which he says, is, which yeah. is a grand irony, right, yeah. that in choosing to remember ourselves, we must forget ourselves, he goes, but yeah. also a chance to redeem ourselves. And in then reanimating the homoplasmates, what he calls us, yeah. humans, right, yeah. with the little slices of the divine, we yeah. sort of redeem and remember ourselves and each other and become whole and then go home again. There's... That's that. That's where I stop. Then go home again. I would say what we do is we wake up, but now the evolutionary trajectory, we now wake up in that. That is exactly the model that I was given in my sessions. But now awake physical consciousness or awakeness within divinity awake within physical experience comes back to the universal transcendent consciousness it's like the mother universe the daughter returns to the mother universe and now out of this communion we will create consciously 
instead of creating unconsciously. So that this doesn't necessarily lead to an off-planet realization, but it leads literally to a heaven on earth as the boundary between spirit and matter dissolves in the sheer power of our awareness. So samsara and nirvana are the same. Mm -hmm. So that the difference is how our experience of them is our experience of it. Mm -hmm. So that's, 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 the, that's the Nisargadatta thing, you know, always and already the other world is this yeah. world rightly seen. Yes. Yeah. And that's so the trick is, is that unique? Is that is that is that a triumphal pinnacle of consciousness in the universe? Or is it just one of gajillions popping yeah, off I, all over the place? I think it's one of gajillions. I think okay. it's our 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 this planet, this solar system, this species story, it's this time. Uh, but just look, you look at the Milky Way, how could it not be going on all over the place? And, and is, is there something about our anthropomorphism? Is there something that we are made in the image of God and God is made in the image of man? Is there something, anything unique to four limbs and opposable thumbs? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, okay. I think there's something beautiful about, you know, four digits and opposable thumbs. Uh -huh. uh, but I think that, um, God, the vast plurality of creation, mm -hmm. whatever is taking place, whatever, when we look at the stars and we look at the solar systems at, and our deep space images and whatnot, and we know everything that's unfolding in the, that complex world, and to realize that the creative power which is animating within us in this world is the same animating power that's animating within that world. Not that it's producing identical types, doesn't seem to be interested in identical types. It's producing an abundance of differentiation. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we just have to accept and embrace that, that complexity. I think that's just part of just waking up inside the garden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, so, but but you do see for for the human race for uh, this family that our culmination lies not in piecing out to the mothership, but that in turning the desert back into a garden, like in reclaiming this little blue marble as yeah. the locus of our meat suits, as we remain connected to a stable downlink to source. Yeah. Okay. Now, this is, I think, the project of the creative intelligence for planet Earth. But whether we choose to continue to associate with this project, I think, is at our discretion at a certain point in time. In the end, I think we, we can come back in a million years and we will find this process continuing to percolate. If we come back in a billion years, we'll find this process continuing to percolate. But I think there comes a point, and, and this I do think it was well captured in some of the Eastern traditions, we can leave. We don't have to stay bound to the project. And the very one of the very, very last experiences I had took me in a place that uh, seemed to give me permission uh, and to forgive me the bodhisattva guilt uh, by giving me permission not to return for the indefinite future. Just because there was such a longing inside of me to explore these diamond realms which I had tasted. And I knew that I would not be able to explore them for thousands and thousands of years in my physical form, but I wanted to explore them in their own natural form, as light.
Oh. So, so you got a hall pass for like the penultimate act. You're like, hey, <laughs> I, I did my bit. Good luck, kids. <laughs> it's going to get worse before it gets better. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think, you know, my life has been so deeply interwoven with the human family life that, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be back and I'll be around as I think we all will. Uh, I don't know where or when, and basically I've turned over that decision to my soul. I don't think I'm qualified you know, to hold that. So I just turn it over and I know that my soul will know what to do at the right time and let it go at that. But I, I do expect a little R&R. Oh, sweet. <laughs> it's like Sally in, in Charlie Brown. Like, I just want what's coming to me. I just want my fair share. Like, I fucking uh, unlocked some miles for you guys. Um, so so, so let, let's let's steer into that, right? So so we have kind of held off on, on yeah. discussing yeah. the cataclysm, right? Um, but you, you don't mince words on it, that the idea that yeah. the path ahead um, entails an, you know, an, in a massive intensification of yeah. grief, suffering, and disorganization, uh, dismemberment, right? From at a bare ass minimum, let's just say late stage petro capitalism and all the um, obscene and unsustainable material abundances uh, and eases that we've experienced. And, and, yeah. and that to you is, is, the, is the Bunsen burner and the, and, and the crucible. Right, that is what yeah, yeah. creates the catalytic conditions for the transmutation into to the diamond soul, to to the embodiment of being in human form. But you know now, and to me, all of these utopian conversations, um, you know, any of them, any of the just so stories. People talk about the Kali Yuga, then they talk about you know, oh, a forest fire is necessary, and then it populates the ground, and up come new shoots, and you're like, yeah, that's fine and dandy. For yeah. whoever gets to be the daffodil, it yeah. sucks. Sucks for, <laughs> it sucks for me and my children, right? Basically, yeah. my generation and, yeah. and that of my children is the only thing that biologically and yeah. psychosocially we're actually wired to act on. Yeah. Everything else is abstract and academic. Yeah. So, and my sense is if you're de if you're delineating literally cosmological process it's highly unlikely to resolve itself in the next, you know, 10 years before I start drawing down my social security, right? Like, like it's, it's, right. it, it's going to take a while. There's going to be a period of deep suckage before yeah. anything can possibly happen. So since that's where we're all actually living, um, how do you both, without dissociating, right? And that's key, without dissociating into magical thinking, spiritual bypassing, or even like apocalyptic ecstatic death cults, like Heaven's Gate, mm -hmm. like hell, if that's where it is, and in between mm -hmm. just sucks, why not just peace out and accelerate the process? Mm -hmm. How do you what what wisdom or consolation can you hold for the humans about to sail off the edge of the screaming abyss? Right? For yeah. an indeterminate period of yeah. intensified suffering and still keep the light still keep the faith yeah that yeah. there is something better this is in service of yeah well you really have sharpened the question uh to a razor edge there and it's a it's a really important question it's a, an important sense uh because on the one hand um if we don't know where we're going, the odds of us 
making it are going to be lower. And so a vision of what's coming, a vision of what, what it serves, what our work serves is I think really important in the decades ahead. Uh, but we have to live it. We have to live into it. We have to really kind of do it completely. So it's important to understand how we can accelerate this process, how we can shorten it. What would it take to, to go through this process faster, more consciously, instead of being dragged through it unconsciously? And so that becomes part of the discussion. Uh, for myself, first I was shown the promise, let's call it. I, I was given this series of visions over four years and the message was always the same, just bits and pieces that would be dropped into different sessions. So I grouped them all together in this one chapter. The, the promise of the, of, of the turning point that we were coming to, the promise of something cataclysmic taking us. And, uh, but I didn't understand how, I didn't understand how could humanity ever make this transition, such a huge transition, because when I look around, it doesn't look like we're going there. It doesn't look like we're gonna get there anytime soon. And then in 1995, when my ecological consciousness was near nil in 95, I mean, it just, but in 95, I was taken into a trans-temporal state of the deep future and in a trans-individual state. So I dissolved into the human psyche and I experienced the human psyche at a future time or in a future expanse of time. And in that context, I experienced as the species, a complete loss of control, a complete collapse, a complete um, destruction of life as I had known it. Just a, And it looked like, uh, it looked like an extinction event. It looked like we weren't gonna make it. It was a loss of all hope. But just like when the psychedelic session, when you go through those crises where you lose all hope and, and you lose all control, that happened for humanity too. The storm passed, the peak worse passed. And when we began to pick ourselves up, we discovered that we had been profoundly and radically changed. We were not the same species coming out of this as we were going into it. That we had found something inside ourselves at the core of this. And I think it has to do fundamentally, fundamentally with the rupturing of the heart, the expansion of the heart that comes not only from our pain, but from other people's pain and other children's pain. And, and just suffering, experiencing this suffering that's going to take place on the world, on television every night where there's going to be no escaping it. So it's not, it can't be a private pain, can't be a local pain, it's a collective pain. But if we can understand that this is a purification process, if we can understand that this is something which is, we're clearing the artifacts of our evolutionary history out of the system. Uh, then we can ask, well, what is, what is a, a higher way to live? And the higher way to live has been always taught to us by the spiritual giants of our lineages, compassion, fairness, uh, other regard, uh, service, uh, deeper communion with the intelligence of the universe. When I had this experience, and I experienced this death and rebirth, and, and I came out of it, it took me really about a year to recover. And as I say in the book, it was like walking around Hiroshima the week before the bomb went off. 
mm. with tremendous compassion for every person I was seeing. And, and because I had experienced that each one of us is a volunteer on planet Earth. None of us are conscripts. We're all volunteers. And we knew what we were getting into when we entered time and space. We may have forgotten. We may have lost contact with it. We can take on the victim role if we want to. But we, when we were more conscious, we chose it. And the trick is now, can we live fully conscious while we're here? Can we exchange the small petty things for the great big magnanimous things? Can we accelerate this process? The more we understand it, I think the faster we can accelerate it, the faster we can move through it. Mm -hmm. uh, well, well, and let me ask you this, because yeah. um, there was a phrase speaking that, that you wrote that just sort of cracked open my heart, right? Which was something along the lines of, you know, not a, a, a tear or a drop of blood was, was wasted. Yeah. Like that every, every single instance of human suffering was part of the metabolism right, was required yeah. and therefore and, sort of rendered purposeful yeah. and holy. Yeah. And is part of the experience of the divine. The divine is not separate doing this to us or outside of us gear, steering us through it. The divine is all of us together. We are all in concert within the divine. So anything we experience, it experiences. Mm -hmm. but, now, but now you said something interesting, and I'm curious, it, it may just be that different levels of reality just don't resolve the paradox, but this is, on the other hand, vital to resolve in some way in this contemporary spiritual marketplace where you said, hey, none of us were conscripts, we were, we were all volunteers, Yeah. right? So that gives it, even if we've forgotten our agency, right, part of our path to redemption is remembering our choices. Yeah. Now that, that, again, at the level you expressed it feels beautiful. Yeah, but at the level of New Age ersatz spirituality these days, it's pathfucking logical because yeah. you have a bunch of bougie folks in their suburban homes doing ayah yeah. ceremonies and yeah. then waving their hands about Abraham Hicks and what they saw on YouTube lately, right? And going, oh, never mind those child soldiers in Rwanda, never mind the genocide, yeah. you know, the Rohingya or any of that. They chose that. Yeah. That was that was their incarnation's density. They need to learn that. Meanwhile, we yeah. are happy as clams and we get to go to our, our meditation retreats in Bali. Yeah. And so it yeah. becomes this profound you know, absolutely um, sickening cop-out yeah. of social justice and responsibility yeah. and the, the, the you know, fundamentally the obligations of privilege. Yeah. So, and well again, put. the paradox may not resolve because they just may be, the elevations may be too far apart, but can you, do you see a way to resolve the caring for our brothers and sisters and the dispossessed and actually taking stands in the streets if needed for mm -hmm. equity and human justice. And at the same time, some deeper long-term knowing that we're all in this to win it. You know, I must be able to, but I don't know how exactly because where I live right now, I don't see any tension or contradiction between those two things. To me, one naturally implies the other. The deeper your experience of the, the deep wave, the evolutionary process, the more, the more you, you naturally want to help others, the more you want to engage all those children uh, in those terrible wars. To me, when you, as you dissolve deeper into oneness, 
your heart, you don't you dissolve you dissolve your mind into the mind of the universe, but you dissolve your heart into the heart of the universe. You you dissolve into the one heart. When you dissolve into the one heart, you experience the pain of life, as well as the joy of life. And when you experience the pain of the of the one heart, then naturally, when you come back to your little bitty fractal manifestation of that heart, you naturally want to end pain. Uh, when you dissolve into the brilliant mind of the universe, you naturally want to bring in more of that mind into your daily life. So to me, one compels the other. And, but that's always been the teaching of the, of the Buddhist traditions and, and the Christian traditions. When you wake up, compassion is the spontaneous manifestation of emptiness because emptiness of self to me, oneness and emptiness are two different sides of the same coin. When you, when, when you experience complete dissolving of all the boundaries of self deeply enough, you experience the world living as one entity. When you experience oneness, an explosion of compassion naturally rises and reaches out through you. So to me, any step deeper into oneness that is authentic manifests in compassion. If it's not manifesting in compassionate action of some form, whatever it is your karmic attunement to give, then there's been a disconnect. There's a kind of a spiritual pathology which is set in. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I, I was kind of thinking it's like, like the lotto ticket test. You know, like if you just found by accident on the street, blowing down the sidewalk, a winning lotto ticket, what do you do with the money? Uh -huh. and, 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 you know, and, and if somebody is truly, their bucket is full, it's like easy come, easy go. I'm going to gift it. If there's some lack, then they're like, oh, well, I'll pay off my mortgage or, oh, maybe I'll style out my family or maybe I'll get that bigger house because I deserve it. Or maybe I'll get the house and the car and the plane. And like and how far down that road of rationalization of I deserve to hang on to something yeah. that was given freely by fate um, is, is not a bad kind of just, you know, thought experiment on no. how much light would I cling to. Yeah. Right. If I was suddenly blessed, you know, by, you know, by the sun. Yeah. Um, so how much so, do you need? Yeah. How much do I, what, what is my story of yeah. how much I've got coming to me? Yeah. Right. Yeah. To the exception of just easy come, easy go and just being a yeah. conduit. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so in, in conclusion, let, let's, let's bring this home and let's bring this home to, um, I'm curious, you know, we, we, we talked about Lily, we've talked about uh, PKD and, and the, the remaining um, one that seems to loom large in both of our kind of frameworks um, is Teilhard de Chardin, right? And his mm -hmm. notion of the omega point and mm -hmm. the idea that, you know, his profound insight in, you know, the 1920s and 30s even was, yeah. was just, hey, there's going to be an end of history, um, but it's going to be this beautifully paradoxical, um, all of us. He, he, in fact, he, he laid it out in a way that I thought was, it's almost yeah. goosebumpily pressing. He's like, there's three intersecting curves. There's the carrying capacity of the earth, which way back when was quite something yeah. to put a pin on the map on. Yeah. Then basically the death eaters, right? The people devoted to separatism, tribalism, right? And egoic win-lose. Mm -hmm. And then they were gonna be the, there was gonna be the Jaw Love Brigade, right? They were gonna be the yeah. folks committed to oneness, 
right? Yeah. And wholeness. And that they were going to become at the omega point, the opposite of the alpha. So alpha in the beginning, oh. omega at the end, that yeah. there was going to be this crystallization in the mind sphere. So not dissimilar than Sheldrake's morphogenetic field, yeah. right? That we were going to wake up to our connectivity and at the same time, our profound uniqueness and individualism. And that yeah. that would be all of us as omegans, all of us becoming this larger body of Christ at the end of time, not, not a second coming, but an umpteenth coming, yeah. right? And that that would represent some fulfillment, you know, in, in a much groovier compared to like Francis Fukuyama's end of history, right? Which was very yeah. neoliberal and very sort of sociopolitical, but yeah. more like an end of history of the way human civilizations have been done until now. So how yeah. does that, the omega point, yeah. And even that, you know, the, the, the Greek notion of, of, you know, your, your future human as Anthropos, right? Some, some Vitruvian yeah. perfectibility. Um, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Like, like, are those, are those nearly identical hits of the same transmission you think? Are there nuances or distinctions that are important for you between what you received and what Teod yeah. laid out? What's um they're basically deeply congruent with maybe a couple of tweaks, but deeply congruent. And to me, it's just so amazing that like Carl Jung, what he explored simply through the power of his own mind and what Chardin absorbed through the power of his own communion with the universe without any assistance, without any amplification, it's just astounding. One difference I think would be simply to remember that the omega point is also a new alpha point. So it's just a stage. And so we're, it, it may be a really important stage, but it's just a stage. Another point for me is that this is a reincarnational process. So it's, it, it is a human story, but it's a soul story. It's an evolution. It's, it, it's about creation. It's about what are we? What, what are we as beings? Are we machines generated by accident or are we, uh, are we rising up in this intelligence that has existed at the quantum level and in the atomic level and cellular level? And it's just, it's rising up within us. Now it's arising up within our individual awareness into this it's a cre it's it's a matter of what what is your creation story and i think what he saw and what i saw what i was given are fundamentally congruent uh, for me what stands out is this acute sense of um uh, purification under death that's what we're coming into i think is a purification that destructures the world that we have created through thousands of years acting on different truths or different degrees of self-centeredness, but basically it's a world built by the ego, uh, an increasingly mature ego, but it's still an ego. And I think we can't have a planet managed effectively by so many billion separate egos in the sense that uh, as long as there's a self-other differentiation, then I'm gonna gather power to myself and improve my side at the expense of your side, that's okay because you know we're not separate. But when the soul arises with so much activated history, with so much understanding of, of their own life experience, ask the other, then the other disappears and a different way of living on the planet begins to emerge. That species, which is so deeply connected to each other, 
and deeply connected to their spiritual essence, which connects them to the intelligence and the consciousness of the larger totality. That being is the, is the beginning of a new creation point in history. But of course, this universe, what we th might think of and see in terms of a process that takes place in a, a hundred years or a couple hundred years, the universe thinks in terms of clearly hundreds of thousands, billions of years. So we don't know we don't know the time frame or anything, but I think we can glimpse something of the intentionality. And I think there's a widespread concurrence that this is how to happen much faster than we think. Mm. The way it was laid out for me in that experience I mentioned in 1995, I got a long, long download on the role of the collective psyche in this transition. This was not going to be done by an aggregate of individual psyches. To understand the dynamic, you have to understand several things. Field theory, nonlinear systems, the function of nonlinear systems, and psychological theory to understand that the collective unconscious of humanity is a field. When this field becomes hyper-stimulated by our years and years of suffering, till we're just tearing our our clothes, uh, rending garments, then it gets hyper-stimulated and it shifts into a nonlinear condition. And we know something about how physical fields behave in nonlinear conditions. They are extraordinary, capable of doing extraordinary things. The psychic field of humanity is moving into a nonlinear condition. In a nonlinear condition, we can move faster, we can move mountains, we can do things we wouldn't think we would ordinarily be able to do. And this is how evolution works. Evolution catalyzes new creative structures out of latent potentials, and it actualizes those structures which become permanent and enduring structures. So this is a shift literally that's taking place at the architectural, the archetypal architecture of the collective psyche. It's really the morphic field, uh, this shift. And it's like every human being who is born subsequent to this shift, and I'm not thinking this is going to happen, you know, but however it happens, subsequent human beings will be wearing a different collective psyche. They will be acting out of a, a, a different base. And out of this, then we begin to experiment, we begin to explore. We don't know what to do with this consciousness. But I think part of what one of the things we will be learning how to do is to use our consciousness to create our reality consciously and with tremendous power in that versus what we had been doing is using our consciousness to create our reality unconsciously and in fragmented manner. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's actually kind of provisionally the subject area of my next book, which is what happens if we culturally start yeah. stabilizing our, our uplinks, right? And, and yeah. my current thought experiment is the same way that Homo sapiens, you know, innovated logos, the power of the word. And we were still monkeys with clothes. We still yeah. had to do glucose to the brain and avoid sh yeah. sharp objects and big cats. Yeah. But we also unlocked symbolic consciousness, past, present, future, technology, philosophy, science, and religion, right? Yeah. All through the power of language. Yeah. What is that comparable step function? where yeah. we continue with everything we already are, but there is that capacity to basically 
fundamentally stabilize and socialize the very yeah. things that all genius and all innovation, all Promethean efforts, you know, whether it's Einstein on his rowboat in Geneva or whether it's, you know, or whether it's Stanislav Grof or, you know, anybody and everybody yeah. who's ever experienced the muses, grace, inspiration, epiphany, right? And we've always had kind of socially approved ways to express or explain it or keep it under yeah. the rug and keep it secret, yeah. you know, now become normalized and, and broadly accessible. And yeah. now we're, instead of just the occasional avatars, yeah. right, we're, we're linking together a collective field that you're describing. Yeah. Um, and and what, what's possible then, right? What's possible when we actually are trans-temporal consciousness yeah. embodied in 3D, but, but stably recognizing and integrating um, both? Yeah, that's... Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of, that's the science fiction future that's becoming the real future. What will that look like? What will it be uh, to have a planet of saints? To be to lived by love. There. Yeah. To be lived by love in full surrender. Yeah. And, and, and what, what. with the kind of psychic empowerment, because the soul operates at a much, much higher wattage than individual awareness, individual ego. I mean, because that is an integration of thousands of years of memories of living of living experience so an awakened being in this soul deep soul sense i think is operating in a different energetic reality uh and you experience this in a psychedelic session i mean because every state deeper into the universe is a state into higher energy and when you tap into that higher energy it fills your body your body starts to go through all this detoxification emotional detoxification history de trauma detoxification physiological detoxification in ways that i can't even understand but as this light crunches itself into our biology uh, sorry i'm getting distracted by that by that experience there i'm losing my track my train of thought um no, I mean, it, to me, it's, it's like William Blake's, you know, tiger, tiger, burning bright, you know, what fearful symmetry, right? That, that sense yeah. of, right, the sense of that, that perfection and unfolding. Now, yeah. you know, I, re I read your book resistingly because yeah. as, you, as you now know, having uh, come across mine, right? I mean, I took a stand against rapture ideologies, right? The wow. happily ever after just so stories that are so yeah. prevalent in the Judeo-Christian canon, right? The idea Sage of, advice, I thought. Right? There was a fall from grace, but, and here we are, but wait, wait, just a second. There's going to be this redemptive arc and then happily ever after. Yeah. And, and so not only does that lend itself to lots of pathologies and, and disconnected wishful thinking, sure it does. Um, yeah. but the things that I appreciated about yours was one, you spend so much time acknowledging both the pre-existing, you know, backlog of suffering, the collective unconscious, uh -huh. and also that there is more to come. So to me, that just felt much more reality-based and inclusive. Mm. And then also that your, your point is not an up and out. Yeah. Right. Your point is a here and now. Deeper in. Yeah. And to, and to me, so, yeah. so those reconcile it and, and that sense of, you know, yeah. because obviously where I put the final um, pin in the map, at least in the story I was attempting to, to frame was radical hope. Right, which is Jonathan Lear at the University of Chicago's phrase for like belief in a future we cannot see from here. Yeah. Right. But that we maintain commitment to regardless. Yeah. And so I think we can know. get glimpses, but we those glimpses are not detailed visions. We get glimpses and glimpses give radical hope, a uh, kind of an, a, an ontological foundation, which yes. is yeah. 
Yes, which is, which is the death rebirth practice, right? Which is which is Wendell Berry's idea of practice resurrection. Because it, you know, yeah. if it's just a post-it note on your bathroom mirror, we're fucked, right? Yeah. There's no way that those kinds of those kinds of flimsy affirmations, the sort of whistling past the graveyard types, yeah. will will remotely be able to handle the amount of grief and disruption that is coming down the pike. Yeah. But a truly embodied sense of yeah. I have been to the mountaintop. Right. And I, and I remember what I have forgotten. I remember the point and the purpose of this, and I am here to bear witness to it, regardless of how my particular chips fall. Yeah. It, to me, feels like the prerequisite for unlocking collective soul force, right? That, the, you know, the, the Howard Thurman notion of like, there is the, yeah. to, to me, it's very congruent with what you described as kind of that, you know, almost like that EMP of, yeah collective coherent intelligence which is like i like i'm no longer seeking pleasure and avoiding pain i am here to bear witness with courage and compassion maybe even play and love yeah you know if if we if we if we really can send it and and that that has the capacity to move mountains in a way that sheer metabolism doesn't yeah i think so and i think when we when we plug in to this larger story, however we do it, when we plug into it, it activates our own uh, our own uh, soul seed that we're carrying, our own karmic seed. Uh, I'm an educator. If I were a doctor or healer, I would be actualizing this plug-in in a different way. If I was a social activist, I would be activating it in a different way. My karma or my stream is to to try to give intellectual clarity. I'm an educator uh, and, and, a, and a philosophical thinker, which is simply trying to distill uh, clearly what, what the visionary experience is in the trust that that will combine with the work of a social activist, the work of a doctor, the work of a choral director, the work of a politician. All of us have these roles to play uh, in releasing and no one can guide it. I mean, this is not a transition that we will be pulling off. This is a transition that nature is pulling off. There there are huge powerful forces which are involved in bringing humanity into this melting pot, into this crisis. In the end, my session stopped a long time ago. I have to live in the world of uh, bread and butter and paying bills like everybody else. And I have to live with the awareness that my visions are incomplete. Uh, And in the end, I think every one of us has to make a choice. Do we trust the universe? Do we trust? And I think this brings me back to your radical hope. Do we trust that the genius that has expressed itself in evolution through time is smart enough and trustable enough and cares enough, do we trust it that that includes my life too? That it includes anything I'm asked to do and it includes our children who are not our children in a larger sphere. We are responsible for them, but they could be our soul masters. You know, they could be, we don't know who they are. Until don't tell they that to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. They'll be, they'll figure it out themselves. <laughs> I'm done for. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, well, we don't know where it's going. We don't know how it's going to get there. But substantive human beings, I think, are the model for how it might go and how we might do it. Flighty human beings, you know, they will always be there. They'll do their thing. But engaging people who have taken history seriously and who take knowledge seriously and take the responsibility seriously, they are the beings, I think, who open up real possibilities for catalyzing the deeper experience underneath larger numbers of people. Hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Chris, in, 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 an, in an age when um, any grand narratives with a teleological thrust, right, are being looked upon with increasing suspicion, and whether yeah. that's, you know, neoliberal triumphalism, or even, you know, orthodox religious uh, redemption songs, um, yeah. this feels like a moment, right, where we are, you know, rightly so, probing and testing all of our grand stories. And, and in right. fact, uh, David Graeber, who was a Yale historian, um, has just, he's about to you know, recently come out with The Dawn of Everything, a, a, a new history of humanity. And mm -hmm. in that one, he tackles basically Yuval Harari versus Steven Pinker, the kind of the, the Hobbesian versus the Rousseauian, you know, like, like yeah. are, are we, are we yeah. noble savages in the state of nature and perfection or is nasty brutish and short and we took a wrong turn back at Albuquerque, you know, 12,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture and his whole yeah. sense. Yeah. was that it's actually much more chaotic, much more, much more experimental, much more innovative, much more ebbing and flowing, much more agentic, much more decentralized. Yeah. So for listeners, I'd encourage like juxtapose Chris's book and take a look at Diamonds from Heaven, which is a, it's an experimental and experiential tele yeah. teleological grand story. Like there's a beginning, there's a middle and an end, there's a point. And then contrast that with Graeber's. If you feel like reading Recapture, feel, you know, feel free, mm -hmm. juxtapose these. What yeah. are the stories that we live by and what feels true? And I think, Chris, your closing inquiry, which is, can we trust the universe? And not in a facile, saccharine sense that lets us off the hook for agency and responsibility, but in a profound and deep sense that is actually deeper than our grief and that gets down through the aquifer, right, to the source springs of yeah. eternal and radical hope. Um, yeah. That fundamentally feels like our project, um, yeah. and and you know, and as you pointed out, we get there by dying repeatedly to yeah. everything that is not that, um, yeah. so that we can carry those waters of life um, yeah. through the desert and and through the hard times ahead and yeah. um, get ourselves back to the garden. Hey, yeah. Remember, Carl Jung said. Um, Nature supports growth. He was asked, "Why do people heal? Why?" And he said, nature supports growth. Nature supports us as we let go of the small and embrace the large, as we embrace the challenge of purification and doing better. It's just a matter of doing better. It's just like, <laughs> we can do this better. We can do it better. I'm a better human being than I've lived in the past. I can do better in the future. That's what we have to be doing. And nature will support that in surprising ways because nature is, nature is the driving force behind this uplifting that's taking place and it's lifting all of our boats all of us going forward in time beautiful yeah well chris thank you um I'm, i was i've been looking forward to this ever since i ever since i cracked your book i'm like oh man we, we've got to talk um a real uh, pleasure jamie i really have enjoyed your writing uh, I, I enjoy our conversations let's do it again for sure for sure thank you much love cheers 
This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.